Hello, this is Chris Robinson speaking from the West Highland Museum with the third podcast which has taken us above the West Highland town of Fort William, above the cattle grid. We're coming to the end of the metalled road at Lundavra, well past the township of Blamafulcher. A junction in the road looms where we can join the West Highland Way as General Wade's Road continues south to skirt the Mamor Hills and reach Kenlock Leven whilst the right branch leads to Lundervra Farm and the loch. Wade's track through felled forestry, after less than a mile, reveals a large cairn on the right, now labelled and interpreted. The cairn was originally raised after the Battle of Inverlochy in 1645, when a party of victorious Macdonalds turned back after chasing a group of retreating Campbells. There they raised a small standing stone and a cairn. And tradition had it that every Campbell passing by removed a stone, whilst every Macdonald added to the pile, and the standing stone was knocked over by a Campbell and raised again by a Macdonald. Both these features are clear in a photo in the 1920s in a book written by M.E.M. Donaldson, Further Wanderings in the Western Highlands and Islands. She describes hiring a Ford car and a driver, probably from May McIntyre's father's garage, to set off in search of the stone in the cairn. Her young driver, who could well have been May Mac's father, had never been up the road before, and she was less than complimentary about General Wade, whom she described as an overrated engineer. Initially, she described her taxi as a disreputable Ford car, but the car and the driver certainly won her over. Much to her amazement, her bold young Jehu, with great skill and dexterity, turned the vehicle without turning it over. They were directed to the stone by a young telegraph boy who took the picture she posed for, placing a stone on the cairn. He got a lift back to town, saving him an eight-mile walk. All was much as expected with raising and lowering of the cairn and the stone, depending on how many Campbells or McDonald's passed that way, until a Campbell moved to live in Blamafulchuk. He would pass the cairn en route to the peat banks behind it up against the river Keishnish, and he decided to take ownership of the monument once and for all. And he demolished the cairn and removed the standing stone with his horse and cart to the deep pool below the fall in the Keishnish to the west. A third, near third battle of Inverlochy was almost ignited and he was pressured into reinstating the cairn but the standing stone remains irretrievable in that pool in the Keishnish. Another stone was found but long ago it slid into a forestry ditch and was lost. When the West Highland Way became populous and rooted adjacent to the cairn it grew dramatically at the hand of passing walkers probably ignorant of sectarian custom, then spilling out onto the road. But now the signage and the tree felling, with the tree felling, the cairn seems to have receded from the road and no longer seems to attract much cumulative interest. There are ruinous dwellings on the track to Kinloch Leven, but once not so uninhabitable in that a determined couple chose to deliver their child in that house in about 1978. A footpath branches off at Larig Moor over the shoulder of Mam Nagulan to the south en route to Callet, of which more later, 
But at the Bialach, at the top of the hill, there is a vast waste of small stones. Either these are the remains of resting cairns from days of coffin carrying or some other human intervention, now unknown. Lachland of Ra nestles in a basin of fertile land en route to Glenree, with its old slate mine and ancient presumed royal status. An island on the loch appears man-made, and that though now stoneless, was said once to have been the stronghold of Banquo, Thane of Loch Arbor. And the water bull which lived in the loch, once said to represent a major risk to cattle along its shores, seems to have gone into retirement. In its heyday it was said to rise out of the loch at night and mate with any nearby cows. Any calves born from its nocturnal marauding had small ears. The long-abandoned heathered settlement of Clashfern between Lundavra and Glenree still holds a fine corn kiln, aside the small berm which winds through its remaining low walls. And a few more steps takes us on to the thoroughfare of the forestry road in Glenree, which winds its way down to the settlement of Inchree and Bunree, where the waters of the Riveree flow into Loch Linney. Peter MacDougall had lived much of his life in Inchree and accompanied me on a drive up his glen in the 1970s. He was a short, stocky man with a stack of white hair despite his age, and there was always a smile and a cheeky grin. He lived with his son, his son-in-law Lackey and his daughter Mary. Both men were somewhat in awe of the lady of the house. I once invited Peter to come with me to the Lochaba Boxing Club's annual tournament where I gave the medical cover. It was in the Croitana Hotel. On arrival I bought Peter a dram, turned around and his glass was empty. I filled it again, as did others during the evening, and I drove Peter home. I received a call to visit Peter, not the following day, but the day after that. He had not been out of his bed. That morning I had my share of the legendary temperament of Peter's daughter, Mary. On driving Peter up Glenree, Glen he proudly showed me the recently felled trees which he had planted and pointed out a small slate quarry high on the north side above the tree line. Better slates here were worth the installation of a dual rail track up the hillside with the weight of a loaded truck bringing the empty, empty truck back up the hill. The road is now diverted past the settlement of Glenshellock, where once lived a Johnston family, and therein lies a story. The first surgeon in the new Belford Hospital in Fort William was the young John Gray McKendrick, who in later life became Professor of Physiology in Glasgow and later the Provost of Stonehaven. His formative years were spent in the Highlands, the happiest time of his life, he quotes in his biography. He had graduated in Edinburgh just the year before and had then moved up from London and contrasted the deep silence of the everlasting hills of Loch Arbor with the shrieks and screams from the Gin Palace opposite his rooms in Lemon Street in London's East End. On his first day in Loch Arbor, in November 1865, he was requested to accompany Mr McLaren, the Procurator Fiscal, to Corran, where there had been a sudden death. He describes the journey, with clouds hung over the mountains, 
deep and solemn shadows which set the scene for the sad sight of the body of a shepherd who lay where he had been found at the foot of an unprotected culvert beside the burn that still runs down to the shore at Corran Ferry. It was suggested that he had visited Fort William to collect provisions and then imbibed too freely at the inn at Netherlock Arbour and his fatal fall had been the result of his horse shying as he turned his cart. McKendrick noted the body was covered in a simple plaid and a loyal dog stood shivering over his master's body. I was relaying the pathos of this scene at Inverlochy WRI uh, whilst giving a talk about local medical history and afterwards I was approached by May Webb, one of the members, inviting me to visit her st- t- t- for some to see something of interest. On my visit she produced a letter from a box in her desk sent by a Mrs Elizabeth Johnston to her daughter in Glasgow from Glenshellach, dated 25th of November 1865. My dear daughter, it now becomes my painful duty to give you the sad intelligence of the death of your dear father, which took place on Friday night. He was on his way back from Fort William with a horse and cart when he called at Corran House and remained there half an hour. On leaving about ten o'clock, it seems, when at the head of the burn above the house, the horse must have jacked the cart, hacked the cart into the burn. And he was found there this morning, dead. He is named as David Johnson, aged 56, on his death certificate. And so the real consequences of this tragedy, unseen by John Gray McKendrick, unfolded. Further down the long glen are the Falls of Ree, now harnessed not for hydro, but for the outdoor pursuit of canyoning, above a pool which still may attract the odd salmon at the back end. The river was once well known for its freshwater pearl mussels, but now said to have been washed out. The long road celebrates its arrival in Inchree with Tarmacadam and passes through the small settlement of forestry houses back onto the A82, and turning left onto the busy road, and after a few hundred yards, a track branches to the left of the small township of Kepenok, where gold armlets were found in a century past, now probably in a museum in Edinburgh. To the right is a road running to Ardru and the Kokena Peninsula, and the stately mansion of Kokena once housed Victor Hodgson, founder of the West Highland Museum, Fort William. The shoreline of Kokena Facing Loch Linney was a front line at the time of the Jacobite uprising in 1746 when the fort of Fort William was sieged by an ineffective band of the Jacobite army. Shots were fired to and fro from frigates passing through the narrows on their way to supply the fort and it is said cannonballs have been found on the shore here. I've been there but I haven't found any yet. Why don't you go and have a look? Retracing our steps to the main road, we passed the fertile fields of Onik, and facing south, and with bands of limestone in the hills, they were colonised by early Neolithic peoples who have left middens in sea caves, a standing stone, a flint factory, burial kiss, and the famed Balahulish goddess. Klachlashara is a lone standing stone in a field overlooking the sea behind a tall hedge. It's unusual in having holes in it, suggesting it spent its formative life in a stream bed. And in later life, it will have stood in this field for 3,000 years, but toppled sometime in the 1930s, 
when a tethered horse resisted its restraint and broke the stone off near the ground. Masons working on the nearby church were engaged to regain its stature by encasing some iron rods within. The mend is not seamless and can still be seen. Tales current in the 1850s that the stone was erected in commemoration of the capture and execution of a son of the commons seems unlikely. He was accused of reviving the rights of Dois de Seigneur with the newly married wife of a local man, which even by that time was judged to be a barbaric violation, if it ever existed. On the hill above are some fault caves, the Clochens, deep fissures in the hillside. These were shown me by Donald McAlpin, uh, up above the vitrified fort marked on the map. I'm not so sure it's vitrified. But the caves result from the whole of the hillside leaning over towards the dry valley which runs deeply into the rocky mass behind the road and below the steep metal track which once led to a bridge over the River Reeve. There are remains of sea caves beside the village hall and others at the back of one of the hotels and excavations in the 1860s found much evidence of human habitation. The aspect of Onik is not dissimilar in its appearance and fertility to the fields which once led around Oban Bay, and when Oban was growing in the 1850s, numerous caves were found with evidence of human occupation. So too in Onik there must be caves above the line of the raised beach, just alongside the road, if they were to be excavated. The line of the road all the way from Fort William has followed a wave-cut platform producing a raised beach 35 feet higher than the loch as the sea levels have fallen and the land risen since ice last enveloped this country. Before Maine's water came to each of these houses, they took their water from burns up at the hill behind. And some ran down through hard schist while others followed the strike of limestone intrusions which run through from Lismore to Appin, under Ben Nevis to Torlundi and Inverroy. But above the shoreline, one house would have a soft water supply, whilst a hundred yards away, water take from, taken from another burn was hard, full of calcium and magnesium, causing the kettle to fur. There are limestone caves yet properly to be explored above the village, with at least one sizeable burn disappearing down a sinkhole. Round the corner and a long straight road now leads to Ballyhulish Ferry, superseded in 1975 by the bridge. A paper in the Proceedings of the Societies of Antiquities of Scotland of 1882 shows the extent of Neolithic artefacts about here. There was a pile of flint fragments amidst the moss and a number of burial kists. The Ballyhulish goddess, however, takes pride of place as she still does, down the ramp at the entrance to the Neolithic display in the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh. She was found by workmen digging the foundations of a wall at the edge of the bishop's garden. Successive Episcopalian bishops of Argyll in the Western Isles lived at the mansion at Altshelloch. When found, she was four feet nine inches high, made of wood and stood on a pedestal. She had white quartz stones for eyes and lay in a wattle basket. The local minister and antiquary, Reverend Alexander Stewart, was away at the time and other gentlemen attempted to arrange for her transportation to Edinburgh. However, 
The idolatrous heathen appearance of the figure perturbed the crofter's ass to lift her. It was not until she was safely sealed in a coffin that they felt confident to carry her away. Sadly, though, she was not well preserved in Edinburgh, and she is now shrunk and unrecognisable against her newly discovered self. The Reverend Alexander Stewart was the Church of Scotland minister at Onich and North Balahulish for 50 years and rose from his last bed in 1901 to baptise one Anak Macpherson who latterly lived in a tumbling cottage on the road to the ferry. Anak's family croft extended over the road into a field which in springtime can be a fence-to-fence carpet of bluebells. A line of scrubby blackthorn hides the shoreline and in the middle of the field are the poor remains of a rectangular building yet hallowed locally as a spiritual place. Some spoke of this being once a church in the name of St Friga with the field carrying the same name. Though the truth is long lost, the hold lives on and when a local minister suggested he might excavate the site This was refused by crofters. Stillborn children had been buried about these walls in living memory. Further toward the bridge is a large pile of stones which may once have contained burial kists. These are Neolithic graves, often with a pottery beaker contained in a rectangular stone box composed of slabs. Others were found at Corran Ferry, on the moss, and at least one was disturbed during the construction of the Balahulish Bridge, but furtively overlooked so that work would continue. The Balahulish Ferry succumbed to progress when the bridge was built in 1975. Two boats had sometimes plied the narrows in the summer, one taking four cars and the other six. Once loaded and balanced, the ferrymen put their backs into it to rotate the platform, without a metaphor, so the cars could drive straight off the other side of the Narrows. Heading south, <clears throat> an inspection of the slipway, revealing more than ten cars, would determine a detour around the head of the loch to continue the southward journey. A short walk from the slipway through the wooded tongue of the land that is North Balahulish brings us to the back garden of Alt Shellach, once the residence of the Episcopal Bishop of Argyll and the Isles. The last incumbent of the house was Alexander Chinnery Haldane, who was present at the resurrection of the Balahulish goddess. His grandson, Broderick Haldane, wrote of them his memories of Callot. The road rides around Bishop's Bay, rising past the track to Carness, where the ferry once crossed the loch. Here, though the loch was wider, The ferryman avoided the effort of rowing against the stream which tumbled through the narrows four times a day. The road ascends and descends and the Callet mausoleum on the right is easily missed. Behind a thin screen of native trees a rising path leads to a gated granite sepulchre once used as the resting place for the Camerons of Callet. Several low marble crosses stand below the wrought iron grilled gate through which the cavernous interior can be viewed. Now neglected and showing signs of unwelcome interference, it stands a Gothic memorial to glories past.
Carrot is now a farm facing south on the north shore of Loch Leven. Its accessibility by sea and sheltered prospect would have led to the building of the old Callot house. There are great tales about Callot, the plague which arrived with a Spanish boat selling silks and satins, an early maritime betterware man. The house was burnt down to stop the plague, but the daughter of the house was saved but quarantined for a month with her boyfriend. But before they were sent away to a cave on the hill, their families insisted that they were married. And another marriage under the cloak and many more stories, which you'll find in the book Bygone Lock Harbour, only now available at the West Highland Museum. We expect to reopen in a month or so. Hope to see you there. Bye-bye.